This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, September 23rd. I'm John Dickerson, and this is Face the Nation. Explosive allegations of a sexual assault dating back decades have put a roadblock in Brett Kavanaugh's path to the Supreme Court. And there is breaking news overnight, as it appears Kavanaugh's accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, has tentatively agreed to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Thursday. Why didn't somebody call the FBI 36 years ago? I mean, you could also say, when did this all happen? What's going on? Uh, to take a man like this and be spurts. Now, with that being said, let her have her say, and let's see how it all works out. But the president's not the only one asking those questions. We'll hear from Nevada voters about how big a deal this is outside the political arena. We'll talk with South Carolina Republican Trey Gowdy and the person Ford first took her story to, California Democrat Anna Eshoo. Then, as world leaders prepare for the annual United Nations meeting in New York, we'll talk with U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Plus, we'll have a preview of my interview with British Prime Minister Theresa May. A key disagreement between the U.S. and Great Britain could take center stage at that U.N. meeting. But by your assessment, Iran is keeping up its end of the bargain. We, from what we see, we believe that it is uh, doing that. Finally, our CBS News battleground tracker shows momentum in the race for control of the House. We'll tell you which parties got it, and we'll have political analysis on all the news coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin with the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, who is in New York this morning. Good morning, Madam Ambassador. I want to start with a topic that is not on your to-do list next week, but I want to get your thoughts. Brett Kavanaugh, the president's nominee, has been accused by Christine Blasey Ford, who has now decided to come and speak to the Senate Judiciary Committee. When you and I spoke last on this show, you spoke about accusers and that you were proud that they had come forward and they should be listened to. But you also have been a politician in public life, and you know what it's like to get accused of something that isn't so. Knowing those two things, help, help us sort through how this should be discussed in a public forum. Well, good morning, John. First of all, I think it's very important that, accuser, that um, accusers are heard and that their story is heard. But I also think the accused needs to be heard. This is a situation where the Senate really needs to lead on this in the way that they are responsible, in a way that they are conscious of hearing both stories, and they do it quickly for the sake of both families, and they take the politics out of it. We see way too much politics in this, and I think at the end of the day, the goal is the truth. And you do that in a way that's not um, with a lot of fanfare. You do it in a way that's with a lot of respect, and I think that's what everybody, and, and, and I think that's what the American public wants to see. All right, Ambassador Haley, now on to the business of next week. On the question of Iran, I spoke with the British Prime Minister on Friday who said the deal is working, that the U.S. has removed itself from, uh, and that the, the U.K. and the rest of the signatories are going to still do business with Iran. Does that mean they will face sanctions from the United States? Well, I, you know, they have a decision to make. Our decision was that, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars was going into Iran, and in return, they were having ballistic missile testing. They were selling arms to 
um, terrorist fighters. They were basically continuing to support terrorism. And what we said was, we're not going to give you money to continue to do those bad things. The Europeans have a decision to make. And I think that decision is already being made. If you look, they are dropping business from Iran left and right. Iran's economy is plummeting, and it's because they can't continue to sustain this. So, yes, we will have decisions to make in terms of whether um, they get exemptions or not. But I'll tell you right now, we're going to be really tough on Iran. We're not giving them a pass. Because let's be very clear, though, about the decision, because the U.K. is still telling its businesses to do business with Iran. President Trump said at the time, anyone doing business with Iran will not be doing business with the United States. Is that still the case? And would it be the case for the U.K.? That that is still the case, and that's a conversation for Prime Minister May and President Trump to have, but that's still very much the case. We're not going to give exemptions to Iran. We're not going to give them any, allow them any money to continue to build their nuclear weapons, and so we're going to continue to stay tough on this. All right, let's move on to the question of Syria. The president threatened Russia, Syria, and Iran recently with respect to the province of Idlib. The president said the consequences would be dire. You also, uh, you, you, you also said the consequences would be dire. So they've reached a de-escalation plan. Is that then a victory for uh, the president's position? Well, I think it's a move in the right direction. I don't think it's a victory until we see it's actually followed through with. We, our goal was to make sure that, first of all, no chemical weapons were used in Idlib, but also that no military action was used in Idlib. You know, they're talking about terrorists. There's about 15,000 terrorists. Well, there's 3 million civilians there. And so the responsibility and the caution that has to be used on any offense in Idlib is one that the United States takes takes very seriously. I think the fact that um, Erdogan and Putin came together, they decided on a ceasefire. We have to see if that follows through. We'll know October 15th, and I think the world is watching. You said in 2017, regime change is something we think is going to happen in Syria. It seems that in the seven years of the civil war, Assad, the leader of Syria, has only consolidated his power. So is it time to just accept that he's going to stay in power for quite a long time? It's hard to imagine a Syria with Assad in power. I think he's going to stay in power for now. The U.S. certainly isn't in any way trying to force him out, but we don't think he's going to stay. There's no way that the Syrian people are going to allow it. There's no way that um, the Iranians, the Russians, anybody else think that having him there is a good thing. And so I think it's a matter of time before he's gone. Switch to North Korea. The South Korean leader reports that the North Koreans would allow inspectors but only if the U.S. takes reciprocal measures. So what is the U.S. willing to offer for inspectors? Well, I think it depends on inspectors for what? You know, inspectors for certain sites or inspectors for all sites. And so I think what President Trump has said is we're not going to do any half measures. We have to make sure that we're thorough in this. There are multiple sites in North Korea, and we need to have inspectors in all multiple sites if that's going to happen. This is really a conversation about what denuclearization is. Uh, what the United States is looking for is denuclearization with complete verification that they are actually stopping their nuclear program. And so that's a longer conversation. What I can say is we've had a win and that we're not having any more ballistic missile testing. We're trying to focus on the nuclear development to get that to stop as well. I think the idea that the Korean leaders are speaking to each other is a win because we want that region to be at peace. And so this is all baby steps, but I think it's baby steps moving in the right direction. You said complete verification is still something to be discussed. After the deal was signed, when Secretary of State Pompeo was asked about complete verification, he was irritated the question was asked because he said it was implicit in the agreement, but it doesn't seem to be a lockdown at all. And this is still very much the crucial question of verification is still very much an open question. There were there a lot more work to be done. Well, I think we all knew this wasn't going to happen overnight, but John, no one can say this hasn't been a win so far. I mean, literally in 2017, it felt like every other weekend we were seeing uh, missile testing. The fact that that stopped, the fact that President Trump and, and Kim have had a conversation and are going to be meeting again. The fact that we now have them to where their first uh, major parade, they weren't displaying nukes. 
that was the first time in a long time. So these are all great steps. The fact that the two Korean leaders met um, and were able to shake hands and talk about peace, this is all progress. But yes, we do have to talk about verification. We do have to talk about what denuclearization means. And those are all more conversations that have to take place. But yep. I think that, you know, the goal on this yep. is that will only happen if we continue to enforce sanctions. Very quickly, one last question. The Russians said the U.S. was playing with fire with its sanctions on China for doing business with Russia. Playing with fire? No, we're being fair. China has had um, their way with trade for uh, with the United States for a long time. Now we're just making sure that we're playing back. We're not going to be taken advantage of. President Trump has a great relationship with President Xi, but he's not going to do it at the expense of the American people. All right, Ambassador Nikki Haley, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, John. We turn now to South Carolina Republican Congressman Trey Gowdy. He's the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, and he joins us this morning from Greenville, South Carolina. Good morning, Congressman. Good morning, John. This uh, hearing that's going to happen this week in the Senate Judiciary Committee, you've, you've chaired some pretty high-profile, politically charged hearings. What are the risks involved? Uh, there's a risk to either side that's not perceived as being fair. Um, I, I've never, I've been in lots of sex assault cases, but not since I've been in Congress. You have got to be fair to the witness. You have got to give the witness an opportunity to fully answer the question. Uh, you need to eschew these five-minute increments that we so often use in Congress. Uh, five minutes is not long enough for anyone to appropriately question either Dr. Ford or Judge Kavanaugh. I, I am confident that Judge, uh, that, that Senator Grassley, Chairman Grassley, uh, we'll run this in a respectful way. But the American people, regardless of whether you're Republican or Democrat, expect these witnesses to be treated fairly, and I'm confident that they will be. One of the questions that uh, Christine Blasey Ford has said is that she would have liked the FBI to do a kind of neutral fact-finding on this. What do you think about that? Um, I'm a big fan of the FBI, uh, John, but they don't investigate sex assault cases. Um, there are very, very few federal sex assault cases. So... Uh, my first question would be the FBI to investigate what? There's no crime scene to process. There are no forensics to evaluate. What the FBI could do is go interview Dr. Ford and interview Judge Kavanaugh. But they've already interviewed Judge Kavanaugh. And even if they did interview Dr. Ford, she still has to testify. So the only role I can see the Bureau playing is identifying other witnesses that may have knowledge um, some of that's already been done by Dr. Ford. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh's defense is he wasn't there, so you wouldn't expect him to produce witnesses. But I, I don't know what people expect the FBI to do. They're not human polygraphs, so right. they well, can't tell us who's telling the truth. But my understanding, though, is that the president, in these nomination, nominations, the president can ask the FBI to do it. So while they may not investigate sexual assault, he could in, in, in terms of getting a, an accurate record. And I guess the thinking is the FBI is a neutral fact finder here, and we don't know what we, we don't know. And so they, without all the partisanship and, and the charge nature of partisanship, could get some of the basic facts down, which would, it's not just about finding information for the general record, it's informing also the questions that the senators may then ask of both of them. Uh, the, the FBI, I know, has already interviewed Judge Kavanaugh. I, I, I have no issues with the FBI taking a second, third, eighth look, if that's what it takes to find out what happened and to fully air all the facts. I just want people to have realistic expectations. I mean, what the FBI can do is go interview Dr. Ford, which is what the senators are planning on doing this week. They can interview Judge Kavanaugh, which is what the senators are doing, but they can't then come in and, and repeat back what either of those witnesses say. You can't determine credibility unless you actually hear from the witness herself and himself. Let me ask you about what standard one should use in trying to uh, sort through all of these facts. This is not a court of law. What's your feeling about the standard that should be used to determine who's telling what the truth of this is? That's a great question, John, and I have struggled with that question. My bias is toward sex assault victims. I spent 20 years uh, believing them, sometimes when nobody else did. I am used to the beyond a reasonable doubt. That is an incredibly high burden, but it ought to be if you're going to take away someone's freedom. Um, it also ought to be a high burden when you are going to uh, impact someone's reputation. And, and make no mistake, both Dr. Ford and Judge Kavanaugh uh, will live with consequences of this for the remainder of their lives. But, but as it relates to Judge Kavanaugh, when you have been accused of something that is a crime, it's an incredibly serious crime. It is a crime that goes to the heart of your character. 
I think American people expect there to be a high evidentiary burden. And I'm really disappointed when I hear senators say they either believe or don't believe witnesses that they have never interviewed or heard from. How can you do that, John? How can you make a credibility assessment if you've never bothered to interview either of the two principals? Let me move on and ask you about the reporting this week about uh, Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general. Uh, some back and forth about a New York Times report that he suggested uh, wearing a wire with the president. Uh, his response or the, the uh, defendants or defenders of his have said this was just a joke. What do you make of all that? It's not a very funny joke, um, but what I would say is the same thing you and I just got talking about. Uh, Rod deserves the right to be heard. Um, and I'm sure at some point the president will bring Rod in and say, Rod, if you think I am incompetent, um, if you feel the need to wear a wire when you're talking to me, then why are you serving in my administration? And it may be that Rod says, Mr. President, none of that happened. Uh, we won't know that until we see the McCabe memos. Um, which uh, if you really want to see them, don't run for Congress. Go be a reporter because they've seen them and we have not. Look at the McCabe memos, find out who else, if anyone was in the room, and then give Rod a chance to explain whether or not it's true um, and the context in which it was said. But, but one thing is clear. Whether you're Republican or Democrat president, you have a right to a deputy attorney general that doesn't think you're incompetent and doesn't feel the need to audio tape conversations with you. Andrew McCabe being the former deputy director of the FBI. The, what, do, what do you make of the president's comment about his attorney general? That When asked in an interview, he said, I don't have an attorney general. What, what do you make of just the general relationship between the president and the, and the Department of Justice? It's terrible, um, and it's heartbreaking. And um, I understand the president's frustration. The frustration is that he picked... Um, out of all the universe of attorneys he could have picked, he picked one that had to recuse himself from that office's um, most significant investigation. Um, but he did pick him. Um, and um, I, I, would, I would prefer that they keep their differences private. Um, there's nothing to keep the president from bringing Jeff Sessions over and having a stern conversation about priorities or policies. But uh, the public fighting, to me, this is a different office, John. It's not the Department of Agriculture or Commerce. It's a blindfolded woman holding a set of scales that each of us has to have confidence in. Um, and and it's, um, it's sad to watch, quite frankly. Speaking of that confidence, just in 20 seconds here, what do you think about the president declassifying uh, the, this information from the, the FISA warrant about an, a, uh, an investigation into his own behavior? Well, I've read every bit of that information, and 99.9% uh, .9 of it has nothing to do with him. In fact, 100% of it may have nothing to do with him. I, I generally uh, am on the side of transparency with the caveat, uh, do nothing that jeopardizes national okay. security or impacts our relationship with our allies. I think the president's taken a reasonable approach, which has given Chris Ray and Dan Coates a chance to come in and advocate for why it should not be released but I've seen all of it, John, and with the exception of one document, I don't think anybody's mind is going to be changed when they read this stuff. All right, Trey Gowdy, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, I'm Dan Primack, business editor at Axios. Right now, you can download, subscribe, and hear ProRata, the first podcast from Axios. We talk about the collision of politics, business, and technology, things like election hacking or the battle over 3D-printed guns or the Washington, D.C. blowback against big tech platforms like Facebook and Google. Listen and subscribe to Axios ProRata now. It's free on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or wherever you get your shows to get smarter, faster. And we're back with the first elected official to hear Christine Blasey Ford's accusations, California Democrat Anna Eshoo. Congresswoman Eshoo joins us from Mountain View, California. Congresswoman, good morning, and I want to start. You talked good morning to, to you, John. You talked to Dr. Ford. What did she tell you that would convince her doubters? Well, Dr. Ford uh, called uh, my district office, uh, and we met uh, for quite a long time while for about an hour and a half uh, and she told me her story uh, she my impression uh, of her was that she was intelligent uh, she spoke uh, softly uh, it was wrenching for her I think to uh, tell the story because there's a re-experience uh, when the story is told uh, she went into many details uh, and at the end of our conversation, I told her that I believed her. 
uh, and that it was important that she tell me uh, if what she wished me to do with the information if, in fact, uh, she chose another path. Uh, and she did. She said she, she wanted me to take it to, uh, you know, a diff uh, down a different pathway. And, uh, of course, with anonymity and privacy. Uh, that's paramount uh, in sexual abuse uh, allegations or cases uh, because the individuals are terrified. This is uh, uh, one of the highest unreported crimes in our country. So she understood the risks and the consequences, and it was a week ago today uh, that uh, she came out uh, publicly uh, because the story was, part of it was out, and I think that uh, it took extraordinary courage for her to do that because, again, she understood the risks and consequences not only for herself but her family. Congresswoman, we've last night heard from another person who Ford said was at the party, Leland Kaiser. She says she has no recollection of being at the party. That means everyone else other than Dr. Ford has said they either don't remember or deny that it happened. Well, there are different uh, remembrances uh, to uh, sexual abuse uh, victims. And uh, there was a third party in the room. My constituent alleges that. Uh, and yet that person, Mark Judge, is not being subpoenaed uh, by the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I think uh, that, that his testimony and questioning should be part of this as well. He, of course, says it's, it's not true. Uh, let me ask you this question. You asked a series of questions of Dr. Ford when she came in to talk to you. Um, what kind? What did you want to know? Well, as she uh, told her story, uh, I asked uh, several questions, and uh, I, I don't want to go into the details of it because I promised her that uh, uh, privacy. That privacy is is paramount. But this is an intelligent woman. This is not a woman that is confused, uh, mixed up. This is something that she has carried with her. Uh, just as so many victims do. So uh, I think that uh, as a witness, she will speak clearly, uh, share uh, her story, and I think that the American people need to listen. There's been a lot of talking. We have to do uh, uh, listening both to Judge Kavanaugh and to uh, 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 my, my constituent. We have le uh, less I think than a minute. there's something else in this, too. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Women share their secrets with each other. And women across the country are more than sensitive about this. So my constituent should be welcomed and given the respect that she deserves. In, in the uh, and, and, I, and I hope that that will be the case. We just have and that her courage is appreciated as well. We have less than 20 seconds. I just very quickly... Often in asking questions of a witness like this, it can sound like you're trying to besmirch them or doubting that this happens to women at all in the last 15 seconds. What are your thoughts about that? Well, if this, is a, uh, this is a crime. Attempted rape is a crime. Uh, and yet uh, the doubt uh, when women come forward, that's why so okay. many do not come forward, because they don't think that they will be right, believed. They believe that it will hurt their, their career or their job okay. opportunities. All right. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for being with us, Congresswoman, and we'll be back in a moment. Ahead of the United Nations General Assembly, where world leaders gather in New York City, I traveled to London to talk with British Prime Minister Theresa May. One of the topics we discussed was the divide between the U.S. and the rest of the world on President Trump quitting the Iran nuclear agreement. Has Iran been holding up its end of the bargain of the 2015 deal? Well, this is uh, the, the question of that deal, of course, is uh, an area where I do have a difference of opinion with, uh, with President Trump, uh, because we believe the JCPOA should stay in place, and others uh, involved in putting that deal together believe that it should stay in place. Uh, we do agree with the United States that there are other aspects of Iran's behavior that we need to be dealing with, too. Um, so looking at the issue of ballistic missiles, looking at uh, the way in which uh, Iran is acting in the region and to destabilize the region. We need to address those issues too, but we also want to ensure that we have a nuclear deal in place that prevents them from a period of getting a nuclear weapon. But by your assessment, Iran is keeping up its end of the bargain. 
we, from what we see, we believe that it is uh, doing that. Be sure to tune in tomorrow to CBS This Morning for the rest of my interview with the British Prime Minister. And we'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. Welcome back to Face the Nation. There are just over six weeks until the midterm elections this November, and for a look at the state of play and what voters are saying, we'd like to welcome a pair of familiar faces to the broadcast. Anthony Salvanto is the CBS News Director of Elections and Surveys, and he has brand new Battleground Tracker polling results for us this morning. And Ed O'Keefe is a political correspondent for CBS News. Ed spent some time talking to voters in Las Vegas this week. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to see you. Good to see you. Anthony, I'll start with you, and let's start at the House. Everybody wants to know, are Democrats going to take control of the House? What do the numbers say? Well, they're in position to as of now. So we've got our estimate that would have them at 224 seats if the election were held today. There's a margin of error on that, though, and it's 12 seats, or about 5% of the whole House. And there are scenarios, plausible scenarios, under which the Republicans get to see some Democratic gains, but hang on, where the Republicans hang on. One of the things that strikes me underneath those numbers in these battleground districts, House districts that we surveyed, is that a remarkable 75% of people say that the economy is good nationally, that the economy is good in their area, but... They're not voting for the Republicans. They're not voting for the party in power because they don't like the way the country is going. They don't like the direction of the country. And that split, that difference, usually say, well, you know, if the economy is good, the party in power wins. That split is remarkable. And it, it really sort of underpins why the Republicans aren't in a stronger position right now. Did you find that sentiment in your group? We did. We talked to two Republicans and two Democrats, and three of those four essentially say, yeah, the economy is in great shape, but can't necessarily support the Republican candidate, don't necessarily like the direction President Trump is taking us. You've got two competitive House races in the Vegas area, a big Senate race and a governor's race. Politics is top of mind. And, you know, one guy told us is he's seen 20 bucks more thanks to the tax cut. Others say, you know, I've got a better job than I did two years ago. So, of course, the economy is doing great. But they have concerns about the way the president's running the country or the fact that maybe Republicans aren't doing more to sort of stand counter to the president. Therefore, they're open for... Uh, for, for change. I want to get to the president and his role in this in a second, Anthony. Is there any other, or take us inside those numbers on the House, or who are the groups we should be paying attention to and what's moving them? Well, besides those, the economy's not enough voters. There's another one that everybody should watch, and that's the potential new voters coming into this. The Democrats' chances hinge on these folks. It's about 17% of everybody who tells us they're going to show up. Well, look, in midterms, less than half of people usually show up. So the Democrats need to change that equation. These folks have not voted in 2010. They didn't vote in 2014, the last two midterms. And they are favoring the Democrats by 15 points right now in the poll. Without them, the Democrats, frankly, do not win the House if they don't show up because they're just barely even among everybody else, those habitual voters. Edward, the people you talk to ready to go out and vote, or are they still even weighing whether they'll even get to the 
The, they are definitely voting. Uh, where, what I thought was interesting, and I think we see this in all sorts of races across the country, is they don't necessarily like their options. You have a Republican incumbent, Dean Heller, running against a Democratic congresswoman, Jackie Rosen, in Nevada. Uh, everyone had heard of them. Nobody was really jazzed about either of them. And so I think that may be an outlier in some cases across the country where you've seen these races with new candidates, new faces that are really drawing a lot of support. Uh, a lot of small dollar donations. Nevada isn't necessarily a place seeing that, at least in its Senate race. Anthony, let's talk quickly about the president. So is he motivating Democrats to turn out who don't like him? Or is, does he have a connection with Republican voters that that connection is sometimes not there for a president and that first midterm election after they've been elected? It's both, and they offset. Um, one of the things that brings Democrats' enthusiasm up to match Republicans, and there really isn't an enthusiasm gap now, is this angry, this potentially angry Democrat who says that if the Republicans hang on to the House, they'll feel angry. And those folks are much more motivated to turn out and vote this year than people who say they'd just be eh, disappointed. Uh, so that's that's. It clearly, he's clearly a motivating factor, at least for them. Ed, I want to ask you, but you talked to the focus group about the Kavanaugh nominee, yeah. nomination. Let's take a look at what you heard. It's fair game if it happened, and I think it should be investigated. I had mixed feelings about that because I felt, okay, none of us are the person that we were in high school. But on the other hand, it was very important to my husband and myself when we raised our child that to our son to tell them that no means no. And you respect women, you don't abuse women, you don't, when a woman says no, they don't. So I think it says a lot about their character. Jim, how about you? So I think that the issue with Brett Kavanaugh is that as a judge and as a justice, he's gonna be ruling on sexual assault cases. So we need to know about this because maybe he secretly doesn't think that sexual assault is a problem and that might infect his rulings. Or maybe he'll be really hard on sexual assault defendants, and that'll overcompensate, and that'll skew his rulings. So either way, this could impair his fairness as a judge, and I think we need to know about that. Lisa? I think the operative word there is fair. You know, Mr. Kavanaugh has been investigated ever, you know, ever since he was with the Bush administration. When you're appointed as a judge, you are investigated by the FBI. They go talk to your high school friends, everybody, at, at, you know, knee deep. And the fact that this never came out in any of these prior situations, and now it comes out 30 years later in circumstances that seem a little bit off kilter, um, is suspect to me. James, how about you? I think she definitely needs to be heard out. And I think it's something that, that everybody needs to hear both sides of the story. Dr. Ford has, has suggested that the FBI should have to formally investigate this. The Senate, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee say, no, we'll, we'll handle this ourselves. We are a committee that can look at somebody's background and determine this. Does it matter to you? Yes, the FBI should be involved. One, they're more competent at investigations. They have more tools available to them to do it. And one point that, that Jim brought up that I really hadn't think, thought about it, but he's right. It's We need to know how that's going to affect him. Is it going to prejudice him one way or the other when he's making rulings in the future? Point as to why it wasn't brought up in the past. That's not necessarily something women want to talk about. It's not easy to talk about. And if you think back, and I, you're probably too young to remember, but I was around when the Anita Hill issue came up, and mm -hmm. she was not treated well or nicely or any of that. So I think somebody now would have second thoughts about actually coming forward and saying anything. He has been investigated by the FBI previously, and I don't know that bringing them in now, you know, for an FBI investigation makes a lot of sense. I think it's too late for the FBI, frankly. You know, these allegations coming up now versus all these other times he's been investigated and had background checks. I mean, I think you can't ignore the, the momentum of the Me Too movement right now, and, and that that might have played a factor and, and sort of given her... The support um, that right. she needs. Four articulate voices, what are your numbers showing you? Uh, hard partisan splits on whether or not he ought to be confirmed, just Republicans in favor, Democrats opposed, but 
also on whether there should be an FBI investigation, also hard partisan splits, just a bare majority, 53% saying that there ought to be. Very high numbers on too soon to say as well. People who are just sort of tuning into this now and saying, let's wait and see what happens this we'll week. We'll be tuning in this week. Anthony, Ed, thanks so much. And we'll be right back. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. And it's time now for our political panel. Amy Walter is national editor of the Cook Political Report and a host of WNYC's The Takeaway. Rehan Salam is the executive editor of the National Review and a contributing editor at The Atlantic. He's also the author of a new book, Melting Pot or Civil War. Sungmin Kim is with The Washington Post and has had a very busy week chasing the twists and turns of the Kavanaugh story, which are still twisting and turning. And Dan Balls is the chief correspondent at The Washington Post. Welcome to all of you. Sungmin, I want to start with you. The twisting and turning continues. We heard from another person who was allegedly at this party last night. Give us the latest on kind of where things are with this hearing and what's going to happen. So it is still not confirmed that there will be a hearing. Let's make it clear. There seemed to be some optimism from our sources last night who've been involved in these hearing negotiations that they might be tentatively, keyword tentatively, moving towards a Thursday hearing. But there are still differences between um, Dr. Ford's team, legal team, and Senate Republicans who will be running the committee um, in terms of how they want the hearing to proceed. Obviously, they had been haggling over the date. There's also a question of the, do you have not senators' questions but another attorney's uh, question, uh, Dr. Ford and Judge Kavanaugh. Um, the, Dr. Ford and her team have requested that senators do the questioning. But uh, Gra- Grassley, uh, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, said he wants to reserve the option of having some female staff attorneys, keyword female, yeah. um, do the questioning there. Uh, there had also been some disagreements about whether you can subpoena Mark Judge, who is the friend who is alleged to have been there when this incident happened, or alleged incident happened. So still a lot of differences between the two parties but we'll hopefully know more later today. And Amy, obviously, the point there about the men doing the questioning immediately takes us to this is fraught because of the subjects and issues, but it's obviously also highly charged politically. Absolutely. The the thought of there are 11 men on the Republican side questioning a female about this issue is is definitely fraught. The other issue, and I I saw this in the USA Today poll that came out right before the weekend, we're asking voters to about their opinions about sort of who comes out winners and losers in this. Not surprisingly, everybody comes out looking not particularly good. Uh, Plurality saying they think that these hearings ultimately are going to hurt Republicans and their chances to hold the Senate, that it's going to hurt Donald Trump, but that by 20 points, it's going to also hurt the Me Too movement. And I think that it's just fundamentally the belief, and I think this is where we are in this country too, it's just one big mess. Nobody's going to come out. This idea that somebody's going to be a winner and someone's a loser from this, we still can't talk about the issue of sexual assault and sexual harassment. It's still so fraught. And now put it in with our polarized political times, it's a mess. Well, and it's not just, Rayon, the question of winners and losers. It's a question of can we get to the truth in this venue, given the time that's passed and the, and the facts of the case. Ben Witt has put it this way in The Atlantic about Kavanaugh. He needs to prove a negative about events long ago with sufficient persuasiveness that a reasonable person will regard his service as untainted by the allegations against him, and he needs to do so using only arguments that themselves don't taint him. Just giving you a sense of the stakes of this thing. And it also may well be impossible for this reason. Remember, before these allegations, the extent of partisan enmity uh, was so deep and wide, there were people who believed just Brett Kavanaugh, 
he invokes a certain type to people, right? There are many people on the left who see his face and they think, this just represents this brand of republicanism I find repellent. Similarly, on the other side of the street, you have people who are deeply suspicious of those seeking to undermine Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh is someone who has been in conservative legal circles for literally decades. He has been a mentor to many, many people. Whereas if you look at his accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, she is someone who represents to many people experience that they themselves have had, right? So this is so deep, and it goes to the fact that Democrats and Republicans are now saying, I don't want my child marrying a member of the other political party. You have to understand this in the context of that serious political partisan animosity. Right. And then, Dan, we have had, in the, during the Me Too movement, uh, a lot of people have learned about why people do or don't come forward, the nature of what these kinds of events, and, and everybody has said, we've tried, we've, as Nikki Haley said, we should listen to and be grateful for people who come forward. Into that conversation, the president tweeted, I have no doubt that if the attack on Dr. Ford was as bad as she says, charges would have been immediately filed with local law enforcement authorities by either her or her loving parents. That seems quite discordant with what we've spent the last year or more learning about the nature of these kinds of incidents. It's completely discordant, John, and it's also completely against what the president's advisors had been advising him. And for a number of days, he seemed to be restrained and careful uh, in the way he was approaching this. And then he kind of fell off the wagon. But it, it is a reminder that this is a partisan moment. So the Me Too movement has clashed into the polarized American electorate uh, over something fundamental, which is an appointment to the Supreme Court. So when you wrap all of that into what this hearing could be like, as Amy said, there's not going to be winners and losers. People, many people have already made up their mind about who's telling the truth in this case. So the difficulty of conducting a fair hearing in which people, in one way or another, have their minds changed seems very remote. And Sungman, are we going to get into a situation where I mean, how broad do you think the questioning will be, uh, not just about the facts of this one particular night? How broad do you think we might get on these questions? Well, we've talked a lot about just the political risk for Republicans and their questioning in this hearing, if it does happen. But I've talked to a lot of Democratic sources who are preparing their own questions for this hearing in terms of the uncomfortable questions that they will ask Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, aides tell me that they are preparing questions on his drinking, on this, you know, prep academy world of the 1980s. Democratic aides are reading Mark Judge's book, where he talks about a lot of this drinking and, a drink and, that, and related behavior. So It'll be a difficult hearing. Um, sources told us at the Washington Post that Judge Kavanaugh is very well aware of the types of questions that he will face in, a, in such a hearing and has been preparing for those questions. But clearly, it'll be a difficult situation around for everyone. And uh, Rayon, Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, said, uh, said basically Kavanaugh's going to make it through. So how does he tell, he said, don't worry, when this is all said and done, he's going to make it through. How is he going to make it through and still uh, have Chuck Grassley say this is going to be a fair, open inquiry into the facts of the case? Well, the senator has to say that because he is absolutely convinced that Brett Kavanaugh is telling the truth. Were he to say otherwise, it would be to suggest that Kavanaugh is not being entirely forthcoming. So it would, I find it hard to imagine him saying otherwise, as that would throw into question the fact that they've had so much confidence in him going all along. Dan, what do you think the scenarios are for this as it goes forward. We've talked about how fraught it's going to be. But what if everybody's made up their mind, it looked like this nomination was on its way to a confirmation. So what, what, what do we think might plausibly happen? Well, I think it's impossible to know at this point how a handful of senators ultimately will make the judgment. I mean, this, this is going to play out in front of the whole country, but in, in many ways it's a focus on a handful of senators yes. who will decide... Judge Kavanaugh's fate in the end. And I think those senators, some Democrats, some Republicans, will be watching this closely, trying to gauge public opinion in their states, uh, and trying to understand better what are the risks for themselves if they go one way or the other. So they're going to be making a judgment on the credibility of both of these people when they testify, but they're also going to be making a political judgment about their own futures. Right. That's and, right. And, oh, right. and that's what it 
looked like in 1991 as well, right? I don't think as that was happening, people were able to digest the impact that this hearing was having. And then, of course, one year later, you have the rise of all these women candidates and the name of the 1992 election was the year of the woman. We already have the year of the woman this year. But it feels a little bit like that game pachinko where you watch this ball and you can't quite figure out which way it's going to go, right? And you're all prepared for it to go this way and then it pings <laughs> over that way. I think anybody trying to be able to get understand how people are processing this in lifetime is going to be very difficult and the repercussions are going to want, going to continue long beyond these hearings. Right. It seems to me the, the, the one of the repercussions is that inquiry in the service of trying to figure out the facts can be turned very quickly yes. into making it look like you don't believe this happens or that you misunderstand the experience of women uh, and the powerlessness they've felt in these kinds of situations, which empowers an entire voting right. block. And as Sung Min pointed out, there are also risks for Democrats looking like they are really besmirching the reputation of this person. Exactly. All right, we're going to pause there. We'll be back with more from our panel. Stay with us. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. And we're back with more from our panel. Dan, I want to start with you on, you were out in Colorado talking to voters. What'd you hear? A couple of things, John. One, on this issue of Judge Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford, uh, A, very polarized reactions. If you talk to Democrats or people who are thinking of voting Democratic, uh, they believe Dr. Ford. Uh, they are convinced that she is absolutely right, and they think he should not be confirmed. If you talk to people who are supportive of President Trump, um, you get a, the completely opposite view, that this is, a, this is an unfair allegation. Um, they don't believe her. They have questions about the timing of it, all of that. Um, Having said that, I think there's another element of that, and that is I think that the people who are opposed to Judge Kavanaugh or inclined to vote Democratic seem to feel more passionate about this, um, and that depending on how these hearings go, uh, that could further energize them. These are people who are already energized uh, to be active in this campaign, many in ways that they had never been active before in terms of doing phone banks or canvassing or things like that. Um, this is adding one more you know, element to their energy. Sangman, let me, in all of your reporting, you're trying to figure out just when the hearings are going to be held, yes. who's going to do the questioning and all of, sure. and all of that. People often, when they see a situation like this, they say, leave the politics out of it. This is about getting to the truth. But in your conversations, give me a sense of how much the politics uh, is a part of what people are thinking then is in their head as they're trying to simply hold a hearing to try to get to the bottom of a difficult question. Well, it's just you cannot divorce the politics from all this. And I think what's been interesting to watch, I mean, we talk about how energized Democrats are, how good of prospects that they have in November. We we always caveat that with the fact that the Senate has a very different map than the House does in the broader national, um, the, the broader national map. And I thought what uh, Senator Claire McCaskill said this week in her announcement that she will oppose Judge Kavanaugh to be very interesting. And this is in the heat of reporting on these allegations. Clearly, she's a female senator. This is, these are very important issues to her. She's a former federal prosecutor. She said, you know, obviously the allegations do give me concern. But that is not why I'm voting against Judge Kavanaugh. She actually cited campaign finance as a reason why she was opposing him and some of his past writings and concerns on campaign finance. So she is in a very difficult re-election race. She has to win over independents and Trump voters. So you just, reading that statement, you just saw how she was just really trying to balance that line. But at the same time, you have a lot of Democrats saying to their base and to their voters, if you are angry about what is happening in the Senate right now, know that it's because Republicans are in charge. So come out and vote. So it's just 
again, cannot separate yeah. the politics from all this. Rian, we've got six weeks, basically, before the voting starts. Um, in the last election, people had a lot of theories about the way things will work. Many of them were not correct. <laughs> what is your view of the way things stand now in this election? What's, what strikes you? What are you watching? I believe that you have a universe of voters. You don't have a vast universe of swing voters, but you have a small universe of them. You have the so-called Romney-Clinton voters, voters who switched from red to blue the last time around. You know, and that's roughly 3% of the electorate. You have so-called Obama-Trump voters. Um, that's about 5% of the electorate. And it does seem as though Democrats have done a pretty good job of consolidating the former group, the Romney-Clinton voters. If you look at the Obama-Trump voters, that's a dicier proposition, particularly if you're looking at the Rust Belt, if you're looking at the Great Lakes. These are regions where it seems as though some voters who might have been reluctant to back other Republicans who are willing to give Donald Trump a shot, it's not entirely clear that he has galvanized those voters. It is not entirely clear they are as energized as they had been in 2016. And that is really, really tough because the Republican Party is a party in flux. It's not obvious that the Republican Party of Paul Ryan, who is, of course, now heading for the exits, is a party that really speaks to those voters and energizes them. It's also not entirely clear that Donald Trump's focus on cultural issues um, that are polarizing are necessarily motivating for that, uh, that group of voters. That's very, very crucial to the party's future. And the yet President Trump is staying on those crime immigration topics. He is going to keep talking about those things until they prove to not work. He has one speed, and that's the speed he's always been on since the day he came down the escalator, the day he was sworn in as president. And today, he believes that that ultimately is important. If there's one thing that really we got wrong in terms of all the uh, theories about 2016, it was that the enthusiasm clearly was not on the side of Hillary Clinton, right? And we heard these anecdotal stories about driving across rural America and you'd see barns painted with Trump signs. Nobody saw Hillary Clinton signs. And we, you sort of dismiss that as, well, you know, lawn signs don't vote. Right. But it was, what was clear was that this energy and enthusiasm for Trump was there in places that a lot of us don't live, right? right? What's clear this year is that energy and enthusiasm is there for Democrats. All right. Last word. Thanks, Amy. Thanks to all of you. And this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests were U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, South Carolina Republican Congressman Trey Gowdy, and California Democratic Congresswoman Anna Eshoo. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.